you know, you really want to look at your best shots. You want to look at your worst shots is, is really the, the way to go. And then, you know, depending on how many shots you're hitting, uh, you know, you don't want to hit too many shots with any one club. That's the other thing, because after about two, three, four swings, now you're fitting your swing to the golf club rather than the other way around. This is The Tournament Code. I appreciate you taking the time to join us today, Michael. I know that you're at Callaway right now. We know a little bit about you from other podcasts we've listened to. But before we talk about that and your history, let's talk a little bit before all that. How'd you get into the game of golf? So uh, I got introduced to the game. I had a, I mean, my parents had never played. I didn't have any, any grandparents who had ever played golf as far as I know. I had an uncle who was working a job and was literally forced to do a, a work event. And he went and played golf. I was uh, pretty young at the time, but I was a good athlete and, you know, a good baseball player and basketball player specifically, and uh, which would kind of become what really was my main focus throughout my teenage years. But he's like, hey, you got to come try this. This is a really great game. He had literally played nine holes. That's all he'd ever done. He's like, hey, you really got to come do this. This is really fun. Uh, he took me to a little nine-hole nine course in Laporte, Indiana, which was close to where I grew up in Chesterton. Uh, it's called Valley Hills now. I think it's changed its name since when I played it. Good gracious, now, wow, almost almost 38 years ago, if my math, my quick math is correct. I think it had a different name when I played it back then, but I've forgotten it. It's called Valley Hills now. Anyway, if anybody wants to look it up, still a nine-hole course. Nothing special, but I, I really only remember one thing from the round. We we went there, uh, we, we rented clubs, and they were on this little, like, rack. It was, uh, you know, wheels and, like, six clubs and and not like a golf bag. But anyway, you know, we, we wheeled it out to the first hole and I didn't know any better. And now I know it was like, I mean, it was probably like 90 yards. But again, I was a pretty good athlete and could hit a baseball and throw a baseball and shoot hoops and all that stuff. And I'll never, I, I took my first swing and, and I hit six, eight inches behind it. And, and the, the ball, I put it on a tee and, and I actually hopped over the, the ball. I actually completely whiffed. Now, I didn't know that was even a stroke, right? And I didn't, I didn't know anything. I never played, didn't know anything about the game. So I just kind of looked at my uncle and he kind of shrugged. And so I stepped back up and I hit uh, my second swing ever was uh, it never left the flag stick. Uh, it, it was this three wood. I hit as hard as I could. It never left the flag stick. Interestingly, there's a road in a cornfield. It's Indiana. There's always a road in a cornfield behind the green and the ball flew. And I, I'm not, it never left the flag stick. It flew directly over the flag, hit right on the front of the road and then bounded into the corn. So that was, those were my first two swings ever on a golf course. You know, we didn't know about penalty strokes. We didn't know the rules. And uh, it's interesting. I don't, I don't really remember anything else about the round. I, 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 don't, I don't remember the rest of it, but I remember that I loved it. And uh, I, I didn't know it at the time, but, I, you know, I'm, I'm old. now that I'm older, I realize I'm one of those all-in guys. When, when I do something, I do it 100%. And when I don't do it, I tend to not do it at all. But that winter, I, I got all into golf. I, I started reading, you know, back then, you know, Golf Digest and Golf Magazine were the big deal. So I, I, I love to read. So I, I bought a bunch of magazines. Um, and then interesting, the first golf tournament I ever watched. Well, I, I mean, maybe some, you know, maybe I had seen something on TV. But the first golf tournament I ever said, hey, I'm going to, I'm, I'm specifically going to watch this on purpose uh, was Sunday of the 86 Masters. 
which is Nicholas's win. Uh, you know, I had heard of Jack, everybody had heard of Jack Nicholas, even if you weren't a golfer, you, you know, if you were alive, you knew who Jack Nicholas was. Now, I didn't know he hadn't won. I didn't know that, you know, he was 46 years old and on the downhill of his career. I didn't know any of that. Right? I just know oh, it's Jack Nicholas. And, you know, he made the Sunday charge. And, and I, I still remember Vern Lundquist's, you know, yes, sir. Everybody remembers that. Interesting, if you watch it now, Vern Lundquist says that like eight times on the broadcast. But, <laughs> but the Nicholas one literally spent, sent chills down my spine. I played literally nine holes of golf. And I went all in. So that, that summer, I played a ton of golf. There's a, a public course in Valparaiso, Indiana called Forest Park. And I think it was $3. I think, I'm almost sure it was $3.50 to play. Um, and I, I didn't come from a lot. My, my dad worked in the steel mills, very blue collar. I'm the oldest of eight kids. So money was, money was a stretch for our family. Uh, I had a paper route, but I would go and play two to three days a week. And I would, I, I'd have five bucks. That's all I have. But for $5, I could play. I could play 18 holes. I could get, I could get a hot dog, and either a Snickers bar or a pop. I couldn't get both because I didn't have enough money for that. And that was my routine. I'd, I'd go play. I'd stop at the turn or stop afterwards, depending what time it was. And then my mom would pick me up, and I'd go do my paper out. And then I'd go to basketball practice or baseball practice, or usually both in the summer. Quite frankly, I was doing a lot of that. So. That was summer of 86 and I was all in and I played a, a ton of golf that summer. And, you know, again, that one round at nine holes in Laporte and then, you know, watching Jack. And again, I didn't understand what that meant at the time. I just knew, wow, this is cool. Um, or at least I thought it was cool. I found out later the golf wasn't cool to a lot of people, but I sure loved it. But uh, yeah, that's what got me in the game. That is cool. That is cool. And that's a nice introduction to the game. And it's funny you mentioned that thing about the yes, sir, because I watched just the other day, I have the DVD of that final round in 1986 and a little bit of before. And I watched it and you're right. There, there are a few different ones where he says, yes, sir. And that was, that's what I always try to figure out. Like I, I remember the iconic putt, but when he said it, he said it earlier in the round, I was like, is that the putt that's supposed to be the iconic one? Cause I've watched this a few times, but he said, yes, sir here. So he did a good job working that in. So you get into golf, you get to play a little bit. Did you play golf much in your junior career, like as tournaments or anything, or did you focus on baseball or basketball, which it sounds like you were more into? So uh, I, I mean, I played tournaments. There, uh, Vel- uh, the, the 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 it's it's very public course, truly municipal course. Uh, they had a they had a weekly junior league. I played in that, and they had tournaments. <laughs> you know, the, the Valparaiso first bank of Valparaiso open and, you know, they'd have eight kids in it, you know, the, this, you know, the Dairy Queen invitational, I don't know if that was a real thing. So I, I, did I play in tournaments? I mean, yeah, but I I literally only played at Forest Park golf course. I mean, so if they had a junior event there, I played it. So did I play in two or three events? I, I mean, I played essentially every week unless, unless a baseball game or basketball game interfered. I played in weekly junior leagues. Uh, it wasn't like the PJ Junior League now, but it was still, we had to keep score. We had to turn it in. I learned the rules. I learned etiquette. Uh, and again, I played two or three, but I, I, I was never a good junior golfer. I, I mean, I was okay. I think, I think my best career finish, career is the definitely air quotes. I think I finished third in, in one of those, those tournaments, right? But it was just a way for me to meet new people and, and to enjoy the game. And I, I, I didn't take it that seriously. I, mean, I wanted to get good. I wanted to improve. And I you know, did a little practice. So we didn't have a lot of money. So driving ranges weren't a big deal. But 
I would hit plastic balls around my yard a lot. That was how I tried to get better. I once threw a, a free wood through a window, totally on accident, true story. Don't really want to get into that. I think my mom and dad still have PTSD from me doing that. But, but yeah, but I, I mean, baseball and basketball were clearly my focus. And I, you know, I, I worked very hard at that. I was much better at that. And, and I might've been better at it because I was a focus, right? I'm not, but uh, I, I did play. I played a ton. I played as much as, as, as much as my time and finances would allow. But, but I, I was not, I mean, the AJGDA didn't exist. And if it did, they wouldn't have invited me. So <laughs> understood. So that, that kind of gets us to the next part is, okay, you, you didn't play that much as a junior. And I think you played uh, like, as far as like competitive, serious golf as a junior that you played some around Forest Park, you played, I think base, baseball at, is that correct in college? Yeah, so I got I was a again I was a very good high school baseball player, very good high school basketball player. Uh, you know, I could have played you know a little kind of you know D three basketball if I really wanted to, but baseball was really my passion. I got recruited. Unfortunately, I had a knee injury my senior year, and and literally everyone stopped recruiting me. And it was a very eye opening experience of the business of college sports. I was very naive. I was the first person in my family to go to college, so. I had an aunt, excuse me, I had one uncle who went to college, but everybody else was high school graduate at the end of it. So, you know, it was all very new to me. And so I started, got, I got recruited my junior year and, you know, thought that if they recruited you, they loved you. And then I got injured three games in my senior year, pretty serious knee injury, and find out that they would drop you like a hot potato. Everybody but Valparaiso University, which is a, a D1 school. Everybody's probably familiar with Bryce Strew's shot. I actually played against Bryce in high school, uh, both in, in high school as well as some summer league stuff. He was a little bit better basketball player than me, but uh, we played against him. Uh, so yeah, I went to Valparaiso University, played baseball there, had a second knee injury. And, and at, at that point, I realized I wasn't going to play professional ball. I was a really good defensive player. I had a big arm, but I was a truly average collegiate hitter. And actually, that's probably even generous. I was probably below average. I realized that I was, you know, I, I, ate, I, I ate high school pitching alive as a high schooler. But looking back, even the top high school pitchers when I was in high school, I just did okay with. And guess what? Mm -hmm. Only the elite high school pitchers are in college, right? So now I'm only facing those guys. So I, at that point, I had realized I was really good defensively. I could, I could catch and throw and block and manage a game as well as anybody. But from an offensive side, I, again, I was average. And again, maybe even below average. I'd like, to, I'd like to keep my ego a tiny bit and say I was average. But so after that second knee injury and all the rehab, I decided, hey, I'm, I'm going to be done with baseball. I actually went into coaching. I started coaching elite youth baseball immediately. And then as soon as my rehab got done, I got back into golf because I needed that competitive outlet. Uh, and, you know, I, I had kind of had, I'd never stopped playing, but just baseball got such a grind. I mean, it's all summer and, you know, living in Chicago area, there's only so many months you can play. So, you know, I hadn't played a lot of golf just because of baseball. And so when that ended, I got back into it really serious. My handicap, I mean, I don't even know what my handicap was kind of when that stopped, but I got it down into the high threes, low fours in literally a summer. That was the first time I had really said, this, this is now important to me more than just for fun. This is my only competitive outlet. Still played a little, you know, pl played a little pickup basketball now and then, but uh, you know, that, and some good games, especially around Indiana with some quite good players I know, but when I got serious about golf, I got, again, I wouldn't call it you know, great or anything, but decent quickly. And I generally maintain that. I'm a little bit higher handicap now, but uh, generally maintained you know, kind of that three to five to six range. Uh, literally ever since that first year, like, okay, this is, this is, this is my future competitive outlet. I, I, I want to do it. And then 
a few years after that, uh, you know, graduated from college and got in the golf industry. And, you know, now it's literally a way of life um, besides just, you know, fun and recreation. Absolutely. Well, tell us a little bit how you got into the golf industry from there. Yeah. So uh, I kind of worked, I got a job at uh, United States Steel uh, in college and had worked there and got a job there. And, and one of the things I realized is, you know, I got promoted several times quickly. And again, now I understand that if you were young, it's a very aging workforce. I think it's still the case now, but even especially back then, if you were young and had half a brain, and that's probably, I fit both categories pretty well back then that they would just promote you. And I got promoted, I got promoted into a job that quite frankly, I'll admit now that I just absolutely hated. You know, the boss was a really good guy. He was a good human, but didn't understand the work we were doing and didn't seem all that invested in it. I liked, you know, the additional money, but just turned out after about four months, I'm like, wow, this is just, can't imagine doing this the rest of my life, quite frankly. And uh, so I kind of took an inventory of my life. Like, you know, I had this engineering degree and I was married and I had a kid on the way at that point. And like, what do I really like to do? And I, I, my wife and I, my wife, Robin, was incredible supportive. We, we literally made a list. Like, here's all the things I like to do. Here's what I'm good at. And sadly, almost everything on the list was baseball or golf related. <laughs> I mean, there wasn't a lot on there that wasn't baseball or golf related, to be really honest. And I had been building clubs back when kind of Golf Smith and, and Dynacraft and Golf Works, you know, kind of the you could order the components was, was still kind of a big deal. So about two years before that moment, I had started, I got into, I mean, I, again, I, I laugh at what I do now. I mean, laugh at it now because we didn't know anything, not just me, but nobody knew anything about, you know, fitting, but I fit and, and built in clubs for myself and would sell them to buddies and, you know, basically just to get money to pay for more clubs for me and more golf for me. But anyway, so, you know, I made this list and I'll never forget it. This is, this is, I mean, the internet existed, but not like we have it now. I was in, you know, looking at the back of the sporting news. You know, back at Golf Digest, back at Golf Magazine, and I sent out 63 resumes and cover letters. I'll never forget the number. Literally every baseball and every golf company, Golf Shaft, Golf Grip, every place I could find. And this is back when you literally sent letters. I mean, this was wrote. I wrote a personalized intro and cover letter for everyone, and I put my resume in it. I had a baseball resume and a golf resume, and sent them to 63 companies. And I got three responses. I got one from Cleveland Golf. I got one from Callaway Golf and I got one from Wilson Golf. I never heard back from any of the baseball companies. I never heard back from any of the other golf companies. Uh, I had interviews at all of those. I had I got uh, offers from two of them. The third one I actually pulled out of, which is kind of ironic because the Callaway job didn't sound that interesting. So I actually uh, I had one interview and they, uh, a phone interview and they invited me to fly out there and I told them no, uh, <laughs> which is interesting where I'm sitting now. But uh, so I had uh, had an interview and got a job off from Cleveland Golf out in, uh, I think it was Huntington Beach then, kind of L.A. area, and Wilson Golf, which was in Chicago. I mean, for a number of reasons, chose Wilson. So I worked there for three years uh, and then went to Adams Golf for 10 years, which was just an incredible experience. That's uh, one of my the best times in my, both my career and my life. I love what I did there. And then got to go back to, to Wilson Golf and run all of R&D there. I did that for seven years, uh, then did some consulting work, both uh, in and out of the industry, actually working oil and gas, but also a bunch of golf and sporting goods consulting. And then almost four years ago, actually, by the time this podcast drops, it'll probably be four years. So I'll say four. Uh, I got uh, back to Callaway full time. So uh, I've been in the industry uh, 23 years ish now. 
And uh, like I said, it's paid for my kids, all three of my kids' college, and my daughters are getting married later this year. It's paying for that, and it uh, our house and our cars, and you know, golf is truly uh, it's become a way of life, which is interesting. You know, going back from literally nine holes in the Port Indiana to to now 23 years in the industry has been a long, long, fun journey. You know, a lot of great moments, a couple, couple heartaches here and there as life happens. But yeah, a lot more, way, way, way more good than bad. Well, that it's very providential then that you got introduced to it back then by your uncle and things panned out the way they did. It's about all you can ask for is have a good living like that. And part of that though, that I'd like to dive into is just starting with some of the early stuff. You said you're at Wilson to start what exactly was your role there? Because really one of the things that I want to learn as we're talking today is not just about golf clubs themselves, but what you've learned along the way. Because I know for me and Cooper, we made lots of mistakes when we were juniors. Even even as recently as maybe yesterday, we probably misunderstand a lot of things about equipment. And so we let and I know the industry has evolved and learned more about equipment as things have gone on. So we'd love to see what you've learned and just get a lot of insight into that area. Yeah, I got into golf in a really interesting time. It was 1999. You know, it was uh, the industry had just started converting over into real engineers. You know, the industry for a long time was, and this hopefully most of these people are out of the industry now, but it was not offensive. But, you know, before then, it was really kind of good players who didn't make it. Uh, you know, the vast majority of what were people who were good college players or good professionals, but just not good enough. And they wanted to keep going and they became club designers, right? And it was more about, uh, you know, them literally on the grinding wheel going, well, I like this shape. And if I move, if I put a little cut out here, it, it feels like this, right? There just wasn't the science that we had now. So, you know, right around kind of early to mid 90s, some of the golf club companies, uh, it's interesting where I'm at now, Callaway and Ping specifically, it really got into engineering. And then some of the other club companies were starting to play catch up. So, you know, I was uh, really, I think, engineer number three at Wilson. You know, that it was it was just getting started. Uh, I, I really, you know, I, I had I'm old enough that we had to do hand drawing of blueprints in college, but I had to do I got to do CAD at the end of it. I I really loved CAD, computer aided drafting, and I had got into three some of the 3D stuff really early, just because out of interest. So that's one of the things that got me in the industry. Uh, now, I was the juniorest junior, junior engineer at Wilson. Uh, uh, you know, in fact, most of my work was on package sets and shafts and kind of stuff that other people didn't really want to work on, to be honest. Uh, all the most of the other cool projects uh, other people took. But I, I showed a passion for putters and Wilson, you know, wanted to do some putter lines. Uh, we're talking about it. And I put some designs together. You know, and quite frankly, you know, looking back now, I probably shouldn't even been in the meetings, but they let me come and present my ideas and my ideas won out and did some cool things. And interestingly, the, the biggest and best one uh, got canceled last minute because of cost. Um, you know, I still mm -hmm. have some prototypes at home. They've never seen the light of day. I'm super proud of them, but no one else has ever seen them. So, um, so I did that. And then, you know, this little company called Adams Golf, who, you know, everybody knew about the Tight Lies, but, um, you know, then Tight Lies 2 came out, which was that they went public and Tight Lies 2 came out. and It was a disaster. Um, but this guy named Tim Reed reached out to me and said, hey, we're looking for engineers. Your name keeps coming up when I talk to other people in the industry as somebody who's, you know, kind of bright and passionate. And uh, I went down to Texas and, and interviewed and um, 
the president of the company was this guy named Chip Brewer. And I, I didn't know either one of them, but was really wowed with their vision, uh, really wowed with their passion. I was wowed with the direction that they wanted to take, take golf club design, what was important to them, what they wanted to do with Adams. And, and people thought I was nuts. I mean, I, again, I had some people in you know shafts and grips who had been around for a long time who Mentors might be a bit strong, but I, I trusted them and called them and said, hey, I need to keep this on the down low, but I've got this offer from Adams Golf, and I really think I should take it. And every one of them said, do not take it. You're crazy. Wilson is stable. Wilson is Wilson. You can't go. You can't go. You can't go. My wife and I talked about it and prayed about it, and we just felt good about it. And uh, so we took it. And it was one of the best decisions career maybe memory phrase it, the best decision I've ever made career-wise, uh, for sure. You know, Chip is Chip is now the CEO of Callaway Golf, uh, you know, modern golf and everything he's been able to do. What we did turning, again, I was I was a medium-sized cog. I, I don't want to, you know, Chip and Tim and, and a few others, mm-hmm. Scott Blevins and some other people deserve a, a lot of credit there as well. But I'd like from a product side to take some of that credit. You know, turned it from a company that was hemorrhaging cash or something that was very positive that was literally the number one hybrid on tour, dominant in that category, had really strong iron performance and incredibly well in the women's category, you know, over that course of 10 years. So, you know, went from something that was, you know, negative, I think literally negative $23 million when I got there to nearly a hundred million when I left. So pretty good turnaround there. Uh, It was just a great time. And uh, again, their vision and a lot of hard work. Uh, We were really small at the beginning. It was a, not not exaggerating. It was a lot of fourteen hour days, um, uh, a lot of fourteen hour days. But we were passionate about it, and we wanted to make it work. And we and again, a lot of hard work and a little bit of luck uh, pulled it off. It was, uh, it was really great. Well, you'll be pleased to know that my dad actually had a three wood, a tightlized three wood that he's been using since he got it in the nineties, and just last week, two weeks ago, he went out to go play. Pebble Beach. He's like, man, I can't keep hitting this. And I was like, well, go to the go to the store, check out the Callaway. I think he got he got a used one. I think it was the Epic Max. We put him put him in a five wood, and he called me after playing out there. And he's like, man, I'm so glad you put me in this. And so it seems like maybe he's following you around as far as where you're working. I as far as the clubs he's using. I appreciate that. Yeah, I uh, I play a fair amount of public golf here in SoCal, and uh, I guess it was, I don't know three weeks a month ago. I uh, was getting ready to play at one of my four fa- favorite courses, and the guy had a full bag of a, uh, Idea A7 irons, which were one of my favorite irons I ever worked on in my life. They were just, and uh, I mean, I wanted to go over to the guy and go, hey, listen, I really appreciate you buying these, but it's definitely time to upgrade. <laughs> um, so, uh, but yeah, they, I still see them out there every once in a while. It's, uh, it's really great to see and know that, you know, some of the stuff that I put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in, you know, not just got tour wins, not just got major wins, but, you know, are, are really loved by people still today. If you're, but if you're playing any of my iron or hybrid designs, again, it's time to upgrade. Well, that's a, that's a perfect lead into when should somebody be upgrading their clubs? Well, first of all, we want everybody to get fit. Uh, I want to stress that enough, you know, buying off the rack, you know, really, really shouldn't be an option anymore. But you know, I, I and and I want to. I'm going to preface this as the answer is every year. I, I mean, but but then put that on your fitter saying, "Hey, this is what I'm playing now. Do you have something that's better?" And put that onus on the fitter, and then you can decide. Hey, this got me seven yards. Is that worth the money? Yes or no? That I mean, only you can decide that. 
you you know the value of your money. You know what you can afford as as a person or a family. So um, you know, I, I always say that you know, go try every year. There, there's there, you know, be honest with the fitter, saying, hey, I'm not sure I'm going to buy today. Here, I'm, but I'm interested in a new like your your dad. I'm interested in a new three wood. I'm interested in a new five wood. Here's what I'm having now. Can you beat this? And then and find that out. Now, if if that's not comfortable for you or not something you're you know even willing to do. You know, literally, you know, every, you know, if you're using a driver more than three years old, uh, you're most likely losing distance and dispersion from a technology standpoint. Fairway woods, I, I would say this was not true, but in the last few years, fairway wood technology is, is just, it's amazing what, what has happened there. So if you haven't bought a few, fairway wood in the last few years, I would say you're, you're, you're way behind just because it, it's now, again, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have said that. Um, I, you know, you could, use a fairwood a little bit longer, but fairwood technology is booming. Again, kind of similar to hybrids, um, depending on the type of iron you play. You know, if you're playing a blade iron, technology doesn't change that much. You know, the grooves will wear out, uh, leading edge, and depending on where you're playing. If it's very sand-based, you play at a lot of bunkers, that type of thing. But if you're using technology irons, again, you know, every, every couple of years, that technology is really going. But you know, again, I, I challenge everybody to, if you're passionate about golf, it's important to you and you're willing to spend, go every year, go, go see what that technology brings. Um, you know, it's amazing the R&D resources, again, from when I came in, uh, in the game 23 years ago to what technology looks like today with, with super cute computers, the ability to do uh, analysis, predictive analysis bef- before we even make parts. The speed at which we can make prototypes now is, is amazing. You know, we can have an idea and a week later be hitting it. You know, when I first got in the industry, 90 days was, that was amazing. If you, if you could finish a CAD model, hit send, and then get that back in 90 days, you were, you were cutting edge. You were like, wow, best in the world. And now, I mean, that's literally, you know, li- laughably bad, right? But just this technology has gotten so much better. So. So yeah, again, you know, if you have a club that you love, uh, doesn't mean you need to replace it. But uh, if you want to play your best golf and scoring and distance is important to you, then yeah, then then there's nothing wrong with doing that. Again, put that onus on your fitter. Be upright and, and honest with them, saying, "Hey, I'm not I'm not promising to buy anything today, but man, that new driver is really interesting. Can we beat it? What can you get for me?" So when it comes to putting the onus on your fitter. But having to, you know, take in the stats yourself. And like, th- I think one of the things that maybe this is preconditioned on is we hope we hope that we end up with good fitters. We hope that we end up with honest fitters who aren't just going to try to sell us the most expensive stuff. But there are those people out there. If I'm out, if I'm out there, I'm getting fit for something. How and what lens do you look through to say, hey, is this incre- improving my performance? And is it improving my performance materially to where I should ne- maybe replace the club? So going from the 1999 to 2023 is like, okay, that's, that's a pretty easy, probably replacement a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. But going gonna, from a 2021. Yeah. Going from 2001 to 2023 could be a little bit harder to like gauge. Is this actually improving my performance. Really, really great question. I'm, I'm going to answer it in, in two parts. So bear with me for a second. The first part is, you know, first of all, you need to trust your fitter. Uh, if you're not confident in your fitter, uh, you know, go online, you know, get, look at reviews, talk to friends who've been fit. You know, all of those things that I just had this conversation yesterday with, uh, with a, a friend of mine who's kind of on the outside of the golf industry, but does some consulting 
with some movement stuff. And that's one of the things we talked about is the number of people who are, you know, are willing to spend $2,000, $3,000 in a club and, and literally just go to the fitter because it's down the street, right? They, they'll, they'll look at 40 Yelp reviews before they buy a taco, but, but they'll, they'll just go to one fitter because it happens, they happen to drive by their place. That fitter may be great, right? But is that the right fitter for you? So again, I strongly recommend do a little research. You know, what clubs do they carry? Do, they, do you have friends who've been fit? Do you have recommendations? I mean, there's a lot of stuff online. There's a lot of message boards. You know, there's a lot of regional message boards for different parts of the country. You just go on those. Even if you're new, say, hey, I'm new. I, I just moved to Colorado. I just moved to Denver. If you go on a golf message board and say, hey, I'm looking to get fit. Who's good around here? You're going to get answered. And so, you know, do a little research. Don't just, don't just go in and you want to trust that fitter. And then when you get there, you got to be really honest saying, I'm here for a new driver today. This is my budget. This is how much I have to spend. Here is what I think my current driver does. And if you have on-course data, even better. If you're using Arcos, or you're using Shot, Shot Scope, you're using Pargolf, you're using uh, Garmin. I mean, there's lots of them out there. I'm not, I'm not advocating for any of those, but there's lots of them out there. You can say, hey, you know, I, I'm missing 34% of my fairways left. I'm missing 21% right. And I hit it 275 or I hit it 235. You know, that, that's, that's really good information. Say, say here you go. Let, let's, let's work on this. And then in the fitting itself, you want to look at a couple things. You want to look at your best shots. You know, what are, when I absolutely nuke it, um, take your gamer in. You always want to take your current gamer in to compare. Um, what are my good shots on my gamer compared to what are my good shots on this new club? And the thing with technology, you also want to look at your foul balls. I mean, being a former baseball player, if I rip one down the left field line and it curls a little much, you know, I just walk back and pick up my bat and I get a new pitch. But in golf, I got to go play that thing. Um, you know, unless it's Oscar Bravo, then you got to re tee. But if it's just, um, if it's just in the left trees, guess what? You got to figure that out. So uh, technology, especially dispersion on better players' clubs, is the technology there is really improved. So you want to look at your best shots, but I also want to look at some of those worst ones um, and say, hey, you know, that, remember that fourth shot I hit that I said was really toey? Can we look at that one as well? What did the launch do? What did the spin do? Where would that one have ended up? Yeah, I was 21 yards right, but you know what? Thinking about that, maybe my gamer, I'm, I'm 30 yards right or, or left or whatever your miss is. So, um, you know, you really want to look at your best shots. You want to look at your worst shots um, is, is really the, the way to go. Um, and then, you know, depending on how many shots you're hitting, uh, you know, you don't want to hit too many shots with any one club. That's the other thing, because after about two, three, four swings, now you're fitting your swing to the golf club rather than the other way around. So it's that fine line. But when you get to the very end, right, you've gone through a couple heads, you've gone through a couple shafts, you know, like, hey, this is this is what I'm fit into. Now let's let's hit my gamer and hit against this one back to back. Let's see what happens there um, and, and, and find out what it is. And again, if you're gaining yardage and you're decreasing dispersion now, I, you know, I can't tell you what, you know, is it five yards? Well, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the value of five yards is to you. Right. If you're a billionaire, you, you'd buy that five yards instantly. Right. Maybe, mm -hmm. you know, maybe money is a little tight. Yeah, five yards isn't enough. But, you know, when you get to eight yards, 10 yards, you know, I don't see how any golfer passes that up. I mean, that, that's a full club. Um, you know, you can look at strokes gained. You know, now you're talking right around 0 0.1, 0 0.2. So, you know, if you can do that on 12 drives, you know, if you're at 0 0.1, the math works out. You probably just lowered your handicap close to one. Um, you know, just by gaining those 10 yards and now having one club last throughout the course of a round, especially now if you're adding a fairway or two on top of that, or more importantly, avoiding the trees or hazards or out of bounds or water or whatever's on your course. So 
um, you know, that technology is getting better and better from a data perspective and, and people are understanding it more. I mean, I'm still not sure everybody understands strokes gain. I think they at least understand the concept of it, maybe not the, how it's calculated and, and the, the practicality of it. But uh, anyway, that's a really long-winded answer to your question. No, that is very, that's very helpful. We, we stress the importance of strokes gain on here. So hopefully our listeners uh, follow along if they haven't. I know that our episode with Lou Stagner had a really good explanation of it that I used to help explain it to people. But beyond, beyond that, we've talked about, okay, here's what I should be looking for in my fitting. But you mentioned earlier that three wood technology has changed. What has changed so much about it recently that people should be looking at that specifically? And actually I'll rephrase that. Not three woods, fairway woods is what you said. Yeah, and I think that's true of a lot of things. I mean, putter technology is really advancing. Uh, Three-wood technology is really advancing. You know, but I, I would argue that all technology advancing. I just think some, I think fairy woods have made bigger leaps recently uh, from a technology, uh, really from a material standpoint, from an understanding of face flexure, spin consistency, um, and some uh, really a lot of things we learned in drivers as, as both Callaway as a company in the industry, we're, we're seeing some others. I'd like to think that we're, you know, we are le a leader in that category from a sales perspective. We do extremely well on tour. Um, so I, I think it's, it's a lot of stuff that we've learned on drivers. Like there's a lot of focus on drivers, right? That is the, 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 the main club. It's that halo club. But there's more and more of that technology trickling down. The difference is, I, I think the industry as a whole used to go, oh, um, you know, we have this technology on a driver. We're going to try to just kind of cram it into a fairwood. And now it's much more about, hey, we learned this from a driver. How do we apply this to make it optimal in a fairway wood? Um, you know, again, if you look back five years ago and certainly 10 years ago, you know, you see a lot of the same stuff in the driver and the fairy wood, but it, it, it literally wouldn't be different, just be a smaller version of it. And mm -hmm. now uh, with more technology and, and the ability to simulate more, to run more iterations uh, using, you know, things like AI, which Galloway's a leader in, that we can find, say, hey, we, we, this technology, whatever it may be, worked in a driver, but it has to be applied differently in a fairway wood. And now we know that rather than just kind of shrinking it down and cramming it in a three wood and a five wood. So uh, it, it's, it's much more taking learnings and applying them better, um, because of having technology and the ability more, more, more iterations, more simulations, be able to prototype faster and finding out what works and, and what, what works and what works better, uh, rather than just mm -hmm. what works, right? Cause it all, it worked before, but now we can, you know, kind of a good, better, best category. We're getting in that best category earlier and, and faster. And now all the time, instead of sometimes. Yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest complaints that people have had about through is I know I've had it, which is like a lot of times it's been a, a suboptimal club and that you have uh, not that much forgiveness on it. It doesn't go it, it's shorter than the driver and it's still pretty darn hard to hit off the tee. And so, and off the, off the tee, it's a little easier than the fair than off the fairway, but in either case, it's hard to hit and can be hard to stick greens with. And so a lot of times, like for my, myself, I've actually taken, for now, I've taken a three-wood out of the bag and just play a hybrid in there. And I know that a lot of people have started leaning that way, and that's maybe why we've had the advent of the mini driver, because it's like, okay, like if all I'm ever going to do is hit something shorter than driver off the tee, I'd rather have it be something like a driver. Tell us a little bit more about, one, how you guys are using AI and how that's effective in club design, and two, how you're also focusing on uh, three woods and making them 
more playable and not necessarily something that people just pull have done what I've done. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's, you know, we'll, we'll cover the AI first. I mean, I, I want to make it really clear that, you know, just having a supercomputer does not solve problems, right? You have to have really smart engineers who are doing real world testing, uh, data scientists, material scientists, um, doing real world testing, feeding that information in and then asking the right questions and ha- trying to solve for the right information and then understanding the data to make good decisions. So, uh, you know, the, the AI is as good as the humans running it. So I want to make sure that's clear that, you know, and, and, and then having the, the computing power to run enough iterations and simulations to make that worthwhile uh, is really important as well. So that the human element is critical. But having said that, you know, again, when I, we look, when I started in the industry, you know, we, we, maybe you make two, three prototypes. And I said, I told you earlier, like, if you get one done in 90 days, that would be great, right? So we'd, we'd make these two or three prototypes, and then 90 days later, we could finally test it. Now, um, we can do things that we can simulate because we understand the collision so much better. And because of proprietary software and engineering work and being able to simulate things, we can you know, iterate small changes in face thickness, in materials, in strengthening elements, um, in, in you know, where the, not just on the center, but on the heel and toe and high and low and all the way around. And we can look and say, hey, this one is reacting like this and because we have the right head model, the right ball model. Um, and, we, and then we can say, hey, this one, you know, we've run 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 iterations. This one looks the most promising. And then we can prototype that in such a short period of time and then say, hey, this is what it looks like digitally. This looks like we're going to get a signal from a, from a performance standpoint. Now we can test that very quickly because the prototype faster and then move forward. So, um, you know, it, it really is that ability to, to make decisions. And, you know, as smart as I am, as smart as our engineers are, we can't look at three, five, eight, ten different variables at one time. The human mind doesn't work like that. But a supercomputer, if you have the right information, can, right? And that AI can, can machine learn, right? It, it does something and did it move the CG? Did it change spin? Did it launch higher or lower? Whatever you're asking, you know, hey, I want it to do this. You ask those questions. Uh, it's a little figurative. It's not exactly like that, but I'm trying to make it understandable for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, that we can find out, hey, this, this combination of a thickness here and a strengthener there and carbon fiber here and this other carbon fiber there and titanium this and some tungsten over there, all of that together makes the spin more consistent on low hits. Or increases ball speed on heel shots or whatever we're looking at, we can combine that all again, again, prototype it and then test it both on robots, but more importantly, in the real world with humans. That makes sense. And then as far as um, three woods go and, and fairy woods, oh, working, sure, yeah. working with those. Yeah. So that's what I call top of the bag fitting. You know, I'm a big proponent. Everybody on earth needs a driver. Everybody on earth needs a putter. So let, let's, that we're down to 12 clubs, right? Everybody needs mm-hmm. some wedges and then find out the longest iron that one that you're comfortable hitting and then two verify that that you actually hit that longer. Uh, you know, you're, you're a really good player. Um, but at some point, you know, you're maybe it for you, it's a two iron. They don't exist anymore. But if they did, you might mm-hmm. hit your three iron longer than your two iron, right? Because of your club delivery, your spin, your launch, your speed. Um, but for average players, um, you know, that might be a six iron. They might hit their six iron longer than their five iron. 
So uh, I'm a big believer in let's find out what that longest iron you hit comfortable in. Again, Daniel, you're a really good player. Maybe it's a three, a three iron. Maybe it's a four iron. Maybe it's a five iron. I mean, I'm a decent player and I don't want anything more than five iron at this point. I, I love my five iron, but I put a four iron in the bag. I looked at my on-course data and I lost strokes compared to the hybrid. So the hybrid went back in. Um, so find, find that longest iron, figure out your wedge gapping because it's really critical, that scoring zone. And then you're going to go, how many clubs do I have left? So I have a driver now and I have a four iron or a five iron. So this is tournament code. A lot of good players listen to it. It's probably a four or five iron, but maybe it's a three. You know, if you're playing in the desert somewhere with not a lot of rough, doesn't matter how many clubs do I have left? And then what do those needs to do? Um, is this second shots on par five or am I a really long player? And, you know, it's really going to be more about tee shots on, on tight par fours. Um, you know, you talked about earlier about then understanding is, you know, just because it's tighter doesn't mean you hit a fairway just because you hit a three wood, right? So do the, is the course you have, does it have, does it have trees and rough, it's trees and severe rough and water really close to the fairway or is it farther away where, you know, it's still, it's still more valuable to bomb driver or, or like, wow, I really need to get tighter. And yeah, hitting three wood only, you know, depending on the players, probably only 10 or 15% um, more accurate at best. But maybe that's all you need, depending on your course, right? So then you have to understand, again, how many clubs do I have? Be really honest. What am I trying to do? Is this a tee club? Is this a second shot club? Where's the courses I'm playing most often? Um, if you are a real tournament player, what are the lengths of the courses I'm typically playing? What kind of second shot gaps do I might have? And then solve that. Um, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've had this conversation a lot. But, uh, you know, when golf first started 200 years ago, you bought literally every club individually, right? I, I need this, I need this, and I need a mashie, and I need this niblick. And, and you mm-hmm. built this set. And then the Industrial Revolution came around, and now you literally at one point you'd buy 13, 12 or 13 clubs, and in, in, in here's your 13 clubs. I think we're going back the other way. I think, and, and the top of the bag is really critical, especially for good players, is get rid of I need a three wood. Get rid of that mentality. Get rid of I need a five wood. Get rid of I need a hybrid. Throw that out the window and say, what distances do I need a club to go? What are my gaps? And what do I want that club to do? And what is the best club to solve that problem? Is it a, you know, kind of a driver two, right? Is it a more lofted, shorter? Is it a three wood? Maybe four or five wood is your next longest club. Again, I think we need to get out of that. Oh, I need a three wood and I need a five wood because that's what everybody has. It's, I need a club that goes 245. I need a club that goes 220. The 245, I need to be able to hit off the fairway and off the tee. And the 245 club, excuse me, the 215 club, I need to be able to hit it out of the rough, out of the fairway, and occasionally off the tee. And go, what's the best one for me? Is it three wood? Is it a five wood? Is it a seven wood? Is it a, is it a two hybrid that you actually turn stronger and now you only have two, a driver and two hybrids? Again, I, I can't answer that. That's going to depend on your delivery, the shots you want to hit, the courses you want to play, um, or kit courses you tend to play. So I, again, I, I'm a big fan of fairway woods, but I do want to get especially good players out of that mentality of, I need a three wood. Maybe you do. A lot of people do, but maybe you don't, especially guys who are really long, who really have a lot of speed. What, what are you asking of that golf club? Again, maybe at the three, what is the right club? Maybe it's not, but find your gaps, ask good questions and go get fit. So I think you're spot on there as far as three woods and fitting everything for a shot in the bag. You know, a lot of guys talk about certain players are loft jacking, those types of things, but really at the end of the day, like, Loft jacking or not, all you're really trying to do is fill a shot in your bag with a club. So it doesn't matter that much what's going on as long as it's functional. So whether your seven iron is 
33 degrees or 31 and a half degrees, as long as there's a functional shot that's coming out of it that you can use on the course, I think that's what matters the most. And switching gears here a little bit, we've talked about your role prior and a lot of your club design expertise. Let's talk a little bit about your time at Callaway. You've been there for a little bit. Tell us about that role and what you do there. Yeah, so it's uh, fast approaching four years. In fact, by the time this drops, I think I may have crossed the four-year threshold. So right, right at that, uh, right at that end point. So it's been a great time. It's kind of interesting. I, I came on board, and it wasn't too long. Then COVID hit. Um, obviously, that was a tumultuous time, and not only the golf industry but the world, right? And and you know, especially uh, again, my official title is director of uh, custom fitting and player performance. It's a really long thing, and then. You know, when you weren't be, weren't around, literally weren't allowed to be around other humans. You know, how do you fit? And so we we did some cool things with uh, with some phone fitting. Back distance fitting is is still going on. Um, obviously, that that's much smaller now. But for people who you either can't or don't want to go see fitting, we have an opportunity there. Um, but kind of day to day, I I am focused on big picture fitting. I am focused really more about what fitting looks like in eighteen months, in three years, what tools, what data sets. Uh, what different protocols that we can create and do to make fitting better. Uh, and that, you know, I, I, I'm not on tour on a weekly basis by any stretch, but I talk to the tour guys. What are they seeing? What changes are they making and how they fit? Um, you know, what kind of different tests or combines or assignments that can we give them that, that we can learn some things and apply that to, to really good players? Um, you know, people who are plus handicap, but also people who are 20 handicaps. How do we, you know, transfer that, all that information? So I, I talk to a lot of the, the best fitters in the country, right? If I, if I want to know what, you know, if I want to help lead what, uh, you know, help Callaway be a leader and what fitting looks like in three years, you know, I want to get great feedback now. So that's something that's really important. We have a national fitters board um, and a team Callaway elite or there are different segments that we work with a lot, which is really great to get feedback from the field. Uh, and then the other part of my job is, is the, you know, and player performance part. And we're, we're continuing to look at ways Besides just, hey, here's the right golf ball for you. And, and, you know, yeah, you need two degrees flat and let's go one degree weak on your driver. That's important. But we continue to look at other ways to help players play better. We're doing that on tour now uh, in, in many ways. Things, unfortunately, I can't talk about. But that's the type of stuff that will definitely trickle down uh, in a very good and meaningful way to consumers at some point. Uh, so, you know, I, I hate to say it, but you know, the best players in the world are also the best test bed, right? If it doesn't work for them, how is it going to work for everybody else? What does work for them? Uh, what is meaningful ways that we can see improvement in their games? I mean, that, that's harder. That's one of the great things about tour players, right? They are so precise and so good. And in many games, ways, they are playing a game that's different, even, even from a good scratch player. I mean, they, they are next level humans um, from a repeatability standpoint and understanding standpoint. Um, but so again, there's great learnings. We take that. So there, again, there's the custom fitting side. Again, that's very future looking. Uh, I'm certainly involved in, in what's going on uh, today, but my focus is really on big picture tools, data, protocols, uh, different you know experiences even to, to make fitting better. And then again, what can we launch in the future? Again, sadly, I can't talk about any of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you know, ways that we're going to not just help you, you know, hit your seven iron one seventy two if you're a good player, or, or one twenty two if you're struggling. Right? Both of those are good numbers for different players. So, mm -hmm. no. Well, in that case, we'll we won't talk about the future. We'll talk a little bit about the present and what you've been hearing from tour players that you've been working with. I know that I got 
we have several buddies that play on the corn ferry and one of them's not under contract on his driver at all and he has the paradigm with him and he's had that out and i was impressed with it um and i've i've used callaway clubs before i've used a variety of different clubs uh, in my driver position and i was impressed with that one it seemed a little bit different than others tell us a little bit what you've been hearing though in general from tour players about equipment yeah so uh i mean not to you know obviously i'm, I'm gonna wear the team callaway hat now and i'm proud of that um uh, proud to be part of this great brand but i mean it's been an incredible year as we're recording this we have nine pga tour wins um, the, this is the week of Memorial, so uh, hopefully I'm not giving too much away, but uh, there may be more by the time this launches. Uh, it has been incredible. And, and obviously, a, a lot of players, a vast majority of players have contracts, right? They're going to play, if they're with us, they're going to play Paradigm. If they're with a different brand, they're going to play their product. You know, you mentioned the, the, the players who aren't under contract, and that is, an, that is a metric that we track. How many players can we get who are free agents, little free agents, um, not to necessarily pay them or sign them, but willing to play the product for free? And, uh, you know, that changed a little bit week for week. But uh, we've uh, at least a few weeks recently, we've been leading that count. Uh, obviously, maybe not the whole count. Some weeks we have, um, depending on who's in the field. But, yeah, that uh, that free agent type thing we've done extremely well with Paradigm, with the Triple Diamond. Um, Paradigm and obviously the Paradigm X, which, you know, this is a better player podcast. Very few uh, would be playing that product. But, you know, the Triple Diamond especially has been tremendous. Um, the ability to really go low spin and, and be incredibly forgiving. That's really the difference in Paradigm. If I had to sum it up for better players, is that forgiveness factor uh, with the low spin? Because oftentimes uh, when you get low spin, it gets a little uncontrollable, right? That you, you, you draw it a little bit or total a bit. Now it becomes a big hook because it is low spin. Um, that's one of the great things about Paradigm, the ability of that 360 carbon chassis, it's, which is little carbon fiber all the middle. We've got, we've got a titanium face and a titanium hunk in the back where we put some weight, but the entire middle uh, is carbon fiber. And that really lets the R&D team push weights to extremes in ways that's never been done, not even our product, but any product before. So it's interesting, the best players in the world, I mean, the, yes, they are different, but they want the same things we do. It just, you know, I might have a 30 yard miss, which actually isn't that bad, you know, 60 yard wide, that's kind of actually average. but you know, how can we get them tighter and tighter? And it doesn't take much. You know, we, you look at somebody on the PGA Tour, you know, if we can get them literally one foot closer, that's, that's you know, close to a million dollars on approach shots. And how do you get them one foot closer? I mean, people don't realize the, the detail that you have to go working with a tour player. I mean, it's great because we have so much data, right, uh, from shot link mm -hmm. and other things that we can get dialed in. But it, it is those things of where is this player missing and how do we help? So drivers specifically – uh, again, the paradigm's proven itself with lots of wins. Um, you know, we had uh, a, a non-staffer win at, uh, at Pebble Beach with it. Can't say his name because he's non-staffer. Uh, <laughs> we've had some other good, really good things as well. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been a big year for Paradigm. We're very proud of the product. Um, you know, I always love it. Um, when I used to be in R&D and designing clubs full-time, people say, oh, you can't make products any better. You can't make products any better. And uh, it always amazes me. And, and they don't quite grasp the tools we have and what, you know, literally hundreds of people thinking full time, nonstop, how to make things better, what you can do. Mm -hmm. uh, Paradigm's been a good example of that this year. I, as I said, I've been impressed that I play right now. I play a Ping G30 just because uh, haven't taken the time to update my driver at all in the bag. And that's one of the clubs when I go in to get uh, fit. That's one of the clubs I'm going to be looking at. Uh, not to derail us on it, but that was. One of the interesting things too with it, you mentioned that forgiveness was the sound was a little bit different and maybe it was just that club, but the sound was a little bit different than 
Callaway clubs have been in the past. It sounded like uh, as far as off the off the face, it sounds a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, so sound it sounds so subjective, right? Uh, I mm-hmm. mean, you mentioned a different brand; they're known to be a little bit louder, a little bit more obnoxious sounding, and for mm-hmm. some people. Um, but yeah, we get a lot of feedback from tour players. Uh, we get a lot of feedback. We, we have what's called a gold panel, which is, is really good players. And then we have, uh, this isn't what we call them, but a lot of everyday golfers, right? 10 handicaps and 15 handicaps. And we test, we test with a ton of players. I know everybody, you know, thinks with, with OEM, it's a lot of our uh, robot testing. We do do some of that, but far and away, the most important feedback is player testing and sound is clear and is, is clearly one part of that. Uh, we've got some unique ways um, because we have the more discretionary mass, the, the ways that we can adjust that. Plus, we have AI uh, and do some things. So, yeah, I'd like to think we're always getting better, um, but it is it is subjective, right? What one person thinks is the perfect sounding, someone else may sound, you know, maybe a little muted or a little too loud. Mm-hmm. And, um, but we are very proud of the feedback uh, and the acceptance um, from all player types, but especially better players. Again, going back to LPGA and PGA and, and DP World Tour, I, we've we've been killing it over there as well. So yeah, it uh, sound is one of those personal things. But uh, I, I've also found in the past that if you get up and if you want to hit high draws and you get up and hitting these bomb high draws, that driver suddenly sounds better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we hear that we see that with putters. You know, when when putters uh, back early in my career went from you know kind of everything looked like a blade and. Then, you know, I, I called it the mashed potato era. You know, there were some really weird looking putters and most of them because of the appendages and the size, they sounded different. But if you get over a putt and you start making eight footers, guess what? You're going to really like that sound. So yeah. um, there, there is a, there, you know, you don't want the driver to sound bad, but if you get up and have the right numbers and have the forgiveness and have the sweet, uh, excuse me, the start line repeatability and spin consistency you're looking for, which again, I'm very confident Paradigm hits all those numbers. Even if the sound isn't perfect to you, it's going to get, perfect pretty darn quick so yeah it, it you just it can't sound bad and again no one has ever said the paradigms sound bad by any stretch but, yeah uh there yeah. are certainly personal preferences out there and, and there's always will be that's just that's part of life that's part of golf part of humans i completely understand well i got before we go into our final questions i got two more questions one of them's going to be looking a little bit forward and one of them's going to be going way back to something you mentioned earlier and so looking a little bit forward you mentioned we can't talk about things you can't talk about. So if you can't talk about it, that's fine. Um, but we talked with a friend of ours, uh, Damon Burrow has a company called golf EQ, which essentially is helping solve the problem of, all right, I go to get fit and I'm not just getting fit for driver heads. Um, like I need to also be getting fit for the right driver head and the right driver shaft because different combinations are going to yield different results based on my swing. And so what, they do if you're not familiar with it is essentially I, i'm familiar with the work okay yeah perfect is that something that you guys ever see yourself not golf eq specifically but that's that concept whereas hey we can narrow down what's probably going to be best for you in a fitting is that something you see your you guys moving towards ever yeah i, I would argue we do that now um quite frankly you know with through a lot of training you know we we have a we think uh, the most expen- extensive and we also think arguably the best uh, fitter training program in the industry. We have online classes. We bring literally hundreds of top fitters across the country to Carlsbad every year. Uh, you know, we are a big believer you fit head first uh, for a couple of reasons. I'll, I'll try to make it brief, but the head is very repeatable, right? If we move, if we move the weight heelward, we know it's going to happen. If we move the weight toeward, if we move you to a driver where the CG is more forward or more back, we know what's going to happen. The physics dictate that. Um, 
shafts matter. I want to make that crystal clear. Mm-hmm. Shafts matter. The problem with shafts, if, if that's the right term, I'm not sure it is, but the problem with shafts is they are not predictable. Just because a manufacturer says, hey, this is a low launch, low spin shaft, a majority of players will generally launch it lower and spin it less. However, a not, not insignificant, typically double digit percentage wise are going to hit that higher and spin it more potentially. So that's mm-hmm. the issue with shafts is there is no, oh, I'm, if I give this shaft to a player, every player is going to do this. You know, the body is an amazing thing. But if you get a shaft for, for a player um, who, might, who, who might feel torque more, they're going to react differently to a player who doesn't react to, react to torque more. If there's a player who affects bend profile, they might release it a little earlier because, wow, this feels too stiff from them. I mean, the back of their brain, right? This is all happening yeah. in split seconds, but the back of their brain is going to go, oh, my gosh, this feels too stiff. It feels different than what I'm used to. So I'm going to release a little bit early. And all of a sudden, that low spin all of a sudden is going higher. Why is that? Because their body reacted that way. So again, shafts matter. We, we, we train our fitters. Uh, we, you know, have, we work with, with the best. You know, we work with Fujikura. We do a ton with Project X and True Temper and Mitsubishi. Uh, they're not Mitsubishi Ray anymore. The Mitsubishi Chemical um, you know, and Graphite Design. Right? We work with all of them. and We believe shafts matter. But shafts are much more individualized than people realize. So. That's one of the things, uh, you know, what I call bucketization. You know, I, I, you know, you can swing and I can probably get you in a bucket of shafts, meaning, hey, here's five, six, eight, ten that are probably going to work for you. Uh, and I'm pretty confident in that. But even then, because your body, your swing, your history, maybe you started off with clubs, your, maybe your dad was a really good player and had X1, dynamic old X100s, and then he cut them down and you were literally playing with rebar when you were younger. That happened, right? <laughs> Your body remembers that. That's what you learned growing up on. That's going to have effect even 20, 30, 40 years later on how you react to a shaft. So again, shafts matter. I, I, I never want to say they don't, but they're just not as predictable. Heads are very predictable. I give you more loft, the ball's going to go higher and it's going to spin a little more. I guarantee it. Now, obviously, impact location matters. That's something that you know better players certainly understand. But I give you a driver in the first three or low off the face. Guess what? It's going to low. It's going to launch low and spin more. That's that's physics. That's the way it works. So you have to pay very att- special attention to impact location in all fittings, but especially shaft fittings. That's another thing I see is um, you know people change shafts and all of a sudden hit it off the toe and like oh this is a draw shaft. I mean I've actually heard that which is it's crazy, but they don't understand right. So um, you know what I say, and I'll, I'll finish on this. We can get the other questions. The main purpose of the shaft is we want to swing it as fast as possible, as consistently as possible. And the definition of consistency is: how, can I deliver this fa- the ball? Excuse me, can I deliver the club face on the center of the ball more consistent? Those two things are more important. Yes, we can look at spin, we can look at other things, but until you can hit the center of the face most consistently at the fastest speed possible with that shaft, the rest of it doesn't matter. Well, that makes sense. I appreciate you explaining that. And then now the question that goes back, you mentioned when you were with Wilson that you had worked on designing a putter and spent a lot of time with designing it, had worked in concepts that you thought were important, and then it never, uh, it got approved, but it never got produced, manufactured, et cetera, at scale. What were some of the concepts that you were toying with when you were making that putter? And what were you thinking about at that time? Yeah, so this would have been that would have been probably two thousand one time frame. So uh, some of the people listening to this may not have been born yet, but uh, yeah, it was a fun project. Uh, it was a fully milled putter line, and, and really, I was trying to take milled putters and advanced technology. Right? I mean, 
milled putters still today um, are, are much more about feel, much more about look, much more about sound. There, there is a performance factor. Um, but that specific project, again, that, that I can't talk about that uh, died on the vine, unfortunately, was really looking at ways of how we can take really advanced um, materials and, and the best science at the time, which, again, 20 years ago, so things mm-hmm. changed. Uh, and, and put some of that technology into milled putters. It, it's interesting. Um, again, more stuff I can't talk about, but, and I, 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 I'm a, I'm obviously on the fitting side, so we're looking at some testing, but, you know, some of that stuff is, is coming in new and better ways that, uh, you know, people can look out for in the future. So, uh, I was really proud of that project. It didn't see the light of day, but, uh, I, I think some of that stuff's going to come around and go around. I mean, there's just, um, putter fitting is more and more players are getting fit for their putters. Thank goodness. Um, you know, I do hear people say, well, I've never got fit and I love this putter. That happens, right? You can self fit into a putter, um, that, and, and, or you select a putter and, and you change things to putt well with it long-term. Both those things happen. Uh, but obviously, you know, we, we, everybody's on board with getting fit for drivers and irons and even fairwoods now, uh, you know, that last, the last two realms and arguably the most important, I, I do mean that our putter and golf ball, and we're finally getting more and more of that. So, uh, you know, Continue to look out for technology. Obviously, sound and feel matter in putters. Alignment is really critical in putter. The ability to return the face square is the most important thing. Um, but there's other cool stuff coming down the pike uh, that uh, I'd like to think Odyssey is, is going to be a leader in at some point. Uh, we're already the number one putter in golf, number one putter on tour. So we do have a clear leadership position, and I'd argue technology as well. But there's more good stuff coming down the pike. Awesome. Well, we're, lo- we're looking forward to it. And I, that fitting point is very uh very applicable and that's something that i don't know i don't remember if i mentioned this earlier or not i've actually been running a test between uh two putters they're both odyssey they're the exact same except one of them has an uh, arm lock slash wrist lock grip on it and the other doesn't and i think the fitting thing is most most um it's best described or best illustrated by arm lock putters if you buy an arm lock off the rack it's pretty hard to get it to fit right uh, whereas if you get one custom made or get fit for it, it works. Uh, and it just so happens that with standard length putters, there's, it doesn't, that issue is not as pronounced as in that you don't feel it as much, but there's still that issue that getting fit for the putter is highly important to make that putter function properly for you. Yeah, it really does. And since you do a head to head test, I and mean, I was putting great with the two ball 10, uh, the Odyssey two ball 10 putter, this would have been, I guess, 18 months ago or so. And I didn't really want to switch. I'd literally been putting the best of my life. I have data showing that. And the two ball 11 came out and I'm a good company player. So I said, you know, I'll try it. And, uh, I, I did a, a two day test head to head the two and 11 and, uh, uh, and the 11 one. I mean, it was just, it was kind of like, it, it, like, wow, we, things continue to get better. It was, it was interesting. Um, that, uh, I, I do the same thing every year. I mean, I get, I'm very blessed to, to work at a great company and, and have clubs and tools available that, um, you know, most people have access to, but, but not all of it, especially some of the ability to test some things and, uh, I do the same thing. Uh, you know, we, I, I, I always want to play the most up to date. Um, and my bag right now is, uh, I've, I've got a paradigm driver, a paradigm three wood, apex UW, uh, apex pro hybrid. And then, um, and then, uh, apex pro iron. So uh, I'm playing generally new stuff, but the putter was get, you know, well, I don't want to leave that one. And but mm-hmm. the new one was better. So if it's better, it goes in the bag. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm different, but at the same time, I'm just like everybody else. Give, give me what helps me play best. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a perfect lead into our last question. The last question we ask every guest is, if you could go back to yourself as a junior golfer, tell yourself just one thing, 
what would that one thing be? And for you, because of your role, we also would like to hear from you. If you could tell a junior golf, if you could tell a junior golfer one thing, what would that one thing be? So it's two part here for you. Yeah. So if I could tell what a junior golfer to do is to keep playing other sports. I know specialization is so important. Excuse me, not is so prevalent today. Um, and you just don't know where you're going to wind up. And, you know, the more we learn and, you know, some of the projects I'm, I'm working on again, that hopefully one day will come out, you know, the more we understand about motor learning and how, you know, how just how to get a golf ball, uh, you know, a golf club back to the golf ball and, 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 you know, some of the better ways to do that and some things that, you know, historically, have, you know, we've been using as teachers or, or as an industry that, you know, it does work, but maybe there's better, more efficient ways. If you're a junior, keep playing other sports. You know, there, there does come a time probably where, you know, but, but that time is you better have a driver's license at least before you specialize, mm-hmm. you know, go, go shoot hoops, go play baseball, go run around a soccer field. You know, there's, there's muscle development, there's skill development, there's brain development there that is really critical. Um, so, I, so that's what I would tell everybody is keep playing other sports. And, and then I'm, I'm contractually obligated, but I believe this, but go get the right clubs. I mean, I joked earlier about uh, dads with the best of intentions, you know, cutting off their dynamic old X 100s, you know, 130 gram shaft, and then they cut four inches off of it. And it's literally stiffer than anything that any, anyone's ever hit. So now I do know, understand there's cost constraints and, you know, sometimes you have to do that some of the hand-me-down stuff. And, um, but even if you're going to do that, you know, I'd, I'd recommend, you know, go find some used clubs that are better. I mean, you can save some money there. Um, if you can't afford to get fit and buy your youngster, all new clubs, I understand there are financial constraints out there, but, um, so yeah, keep playing other sports and, and and try to get things that, uh, the player can actually swing to develop, um, good rhythm and tempo and a way to deliver the club head. Uh, As for myself, um, I wish I would have taken, uh, golf. How would I, I played as much as I possibly could back then, um, that, that my finances and, and schedule would allow. Um, but I wish I would have done more of the social stuff because I, I went to the course and, uh, you know, my normal peer group, um, you know, didn't play golf. They, that that mm-hmm. wasn't what they did. So when I went to the course, it was all I was almost always paired with, you know, three other juniors that I didn't know. And I wish uh, and I had a really good time. And, you know, we had a great four hours. Right. Um, but it, it didn't it didn't translate into like friendships off course as much as I, I wish it would have. I look back and you know, a few of the guys who I went into playing with a lot, we had a lot in common and maybe they lived a town over or two towns over. Um, you know, there wasn't social media then and there wasn't cell phones, right. I couldn't send them a text. And so it was, it was harder to keep up with them, but I, I look back and, you know, there, you know, some guys who I literally haven't talked to in 30 years. And honestly, if they crossed me in the street at this point, I wouldn't recognize them. Right. Cause it's been so long, but uh, boy, there was, we had some good times at forest park golf course and, you know, kicking it around. And I, I wish I would have been able, again, it was a different time. Um, you know, literally rotary phones, right? There's a whole different <laughs> world back then. But I wish there was a way I could, you know, kind of connect with those guys and say, hey, you know, this is what I'm doing now. And, you know, I stayed in the golf industry. And, you know, I appreciate you guys being nice to this guy who, you know, knew nothing about golf, right? I didn't have parents who were in it, didn't have a legacy of golf. Um, but I was passionate about it. I loved it. I, you know, and played it. But uh, it was kind of, you know, ships in the night type thing. And I, I, again, I don't, I don't regret it. It's nothing bad, but yeah, if I could go back in time, I'd figure out knowing what I know now, figure out how, how those could have been more lasting friendships. And uh, again, I think it might've been just time and place as much as anything, but that's, that's my one. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's a good thing to 
look back on. I know for Cooper and I, it worked out. Uh, almost all of our friends are guys that we grew up playing golf with or guys that we play golf with now. So uh, even even now, it's still it's still a blessing to make those friendships. So all that being said, we appreciate you joining us. Where can people find you on social media if they want to reach out to you, ask you more questions, et cetera? Yeah, and please do. I'm at vgolfman on uh, pretty much all social media platforms. Now, having said that, I don't think I've posted on Instagram in about 15 years. I, I'm on there. Uh, for, you know, I, I do comment, but I haven't posted a picture. But I'm very active on Twitter. Uh, I've got my Monday golf poll. Uh, I've got my Friday random golf thoughts that I do every week. Um, some of those are fitting related. Some of them are just golf life related. Um, and I try and I do my best to answer fitting questions. So uh, go on there uh, again, follow at V golf man. Uh, you're happy to send me uh, whether it's a public tweet or a DM. I try to respond to all of those. Uh, so Twitter is kind of my thing, but I am on, on most of the other social medias, but always at V golf. Perfect. Be sure to give Michael a follow. And then if you're listening to this on Apple podcasts or Spotify, please subscribe and leave us a rating. And if you're listening on YouTube, please like and subscribe. This helps us get our message out to more people. And if you're trying to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at the tournament code and on Twitter at tournament code. As always, we appreciate you taking the time to join us and dive deeper into what it takes to play elite tournament golf.